One of the most misunderstood principles in the Rosicrucian teachings is the principle of karma, the law of cause and effect. Yet it is one of the most important ones that we shall ever study. It touches every aspect of our lives, every atom of the universe. It is all-encompassing. First of all, let's clarify one important thing about karma. Karma is not bad, something we must avoid. Karma is simply the outcome of our thinking and actions, or rather, it is the principle behind those occurrences, and it is as certain as the law of gravity. Many of us have become accustomed to using the term karma whenever describing bad luck or some negative occurrence in our lives. If we have an accident, or become ill, or we are verbally attacked, we ascribe our misfortune to karma. Karma, then, becomes something negative to our minds. But on the other hand, whenever we have a so-called stroke of good luck, or we close an important sale, or win a contest, karma has nothing to do with it. We happen to arrive at our fortunate position through our own wits and intelligence and cunning. All of the occurrences of our lives, good and bad, are simply the impersonal, universal effects of causes which have been set into motion. Good and evil are only positive and negative aspects of the same principle. That's why you often hear that there is no evil in the world, a statement that's sometimes hard to believe. There are only negative aspects of the universe's working principles. When good luck or bad comes our way, we must realize that it is a natural outcome of an impersonal principle. Our fortune or misfortune is not dependent upon beneficent angels or angry gods. And that should be comforting to any student of mysticism. Secondly, let's consider two kinds of karma. Concerning the negative side of karma, some writers have broken it into two types, the avoidable and the unavoidable. The avoidable kind of karma may be illustrated by the following example. Upon arriving at work in the morning, we're in the habit of meeting everyone with a scowl. We are negative and irritable. The natural outcome is that we find others unfriendly toward us. To break through their lack of friendliness, we determine that we shall change our attitude. So, upon arriving at work, we begin a trend by smiling at others and becoming friendly with them. We see immediate change in others and how they react to us. They now treat us with respect and they meet us with friendly smiles. The chain of karma has not been broken. Rather, the negative aspect has been transformed into a positive one. We see examples of this sort of thing every day in our lives. It is fairly obvious to our senses, and everyone, mystically minded or not, would agree that it works. It is an example of avoidable karma. The fact is that practically all negative karma is avoidable. The karma which is considered as unavoidable might be illustrated by the man who has a terrible misfortune befall him for no reason he can discern, and he blames his bad luck on some grievous error committed in a past life. We don't want to give the impression that this is impossible, but it should be pointed out that there is a danger in always attributing our misfortune to something which we may have done in another incarnation. To blame our bad luck on something which may have happened hundreds of years ago is nothing more than a balm for our hurt feelings. It is an attempt 
to escape responsibility. Most negative karma is caused by ourselves right here, right now, in our present existence. It is for this reason that practically all karma is avoidable. But as long as we insist on placing the blame on others, or on angry gods, or on someone we may have been in a previous existence, we close our minds to the real cause of all karma, ourselves. Additionally, we must be willing to agree that there are some things we cannot change about the world, nor is the world our responsibility. For instance, the grumpy neighbor or unkind employer who seems, for no apparent reason, to dislike us and who insists upon treating us with a lack of respect. Some people, no matter how hard we try, simply will not change their opinions of us. They insist upon disliking us, and they will not change. They should be avoided as much as possible. We must realize that there will be moments in our lives which are less than pleasant. A member of the family passes through transition, or the automobile quits running. It is not because fate has it in for us, Everyone must pass through transition, and machines do break down, no matter how positive we are at the time. We must learn not to be overly upset with many of life's occurrences, and we must learn to separate those things which we can do something about, and those things we cannot. As has been said, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Any time given in meditating upon which is which would be time well spent. Why does one person have so much good luck while others seem to have so little? Is it because he has been generous and has given to others? Perhaps. We have all heard of the law of Amra, as you give, so shall you receive. It is part and parcel of karma. But it is not so much the giving which has attracted good luck as it is the attitude, the mental state of mind which is willing to give. One may not have much to give to others materially, but his mental attitude, his willingness to share, and all that that entails, is what will attract positive events. The mere desire to become more positive and less selfish, and our willingness to work toward that end, will create more of those good and pleasant experiences which we all seek. Our motives play a major part in our karma. If we commit an act, even a positive one, and our motive is wrong, that same mental attitude will continue to attract negative karma to us until we are able to change. We shall continue to suffer negative karma, not so much because of the act we have committed but because that aspect of our personality which allowed us to perform the act is still within us, still attracting negative results. Let's look at how the mental attitude works to attract certain people and situations. As an illustration, let us say that there is a fellow who has consistently been fired from his job. Over the years, each job he has held has ended in the same result. If we were able to follow him around for all those years and observe his movements and listen to his words, read his thoughts, we would see that he has, in each instance, attracted the situation to himself. 
to listen to him talk, it would seem that the world is a hard, cold place to live in. The whole world is against him. He seeks our sympathy. How could he possibly be successful in such a world? The truth is that, unconsciously, he has moved himself into a position as a clever chess player moves his chess pieces so that his boss has no choice but to fire him. It is possible that the firing came shortly after the man had been given more responsibility. The man cannot run away from responsibility. That would be an admission of a certain lack of character. But if he is fired from the job for no good reason at all, or at least that is what he would have us believe, then the blame lies with the boss who fired him. Unless a major change in this man's attitude comes about, you can bet that he will be fired from his next job, and the next, and the next. Until he sees the light, until he admits to himself the error of his ways, he will repeatedly attract to himself the people and the situations necessary to prove to himself, his friends and his family, that the world is against him. Human beings are creatures of habit. From childhood through adult life, we unconsciously repeat our mistakes until the time comes when we are willing to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves in the mirror and take a solemn vow to improve our mental attitude for the better. Whenever you hear someone say, I guess he'll never learn, you can be certain that there is some truth in it. This obsession to repeat our mistakes brings a great deal of unnecessary trouble into our lives, and it carries over from one incarnation to another until we are able to change. In studying karma, we are often confronted with a problem of discerning right from wrong. What is wrong? Well, that which is out of harmony with the cosmic laws is wrong, not because of values placed on the action, but because it is naturally inharmonious. Remember, karma is impersonal. It is not a matter of judgment and punishment. On the other hand, the personal aspect also enters into karma where our personal lives are concerned. If we think an act to be wrong, we will have created unnecessary karma and suffering for ourselves. This means we must learn to view ourselves and our actions in a new light. Through meditation, we must gain a greater understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is harmonious and what is inharmonious with the cosmic scheme. Furthermore, we must not continuously punish ourselves for mistakes we have made. As long as we have learned a lesson from the experience and vow not to repeat the act, karma is alleviated. The value of experience is the lesson learned. First, we practice abstention of the negative act. We practice consciously until it becomes a habit to perform positive acts rather than negative ones. As we grow more in harmony with the cosmic, we find that the act is unnecessary. No longer do we have to fight to overcome temptation. Rather, we find that we are not tempted at all. Also, we learn to realize that the act itself was not good or evil. What was initially wrong was our reasons or motives for performing the act. 
One of the reasons we sometimes feel threatened by our conscience is because we are actually reluctant to give up a particular mental state. We have become so accustomed to thinking a particular way, to acting as we do, to pandering to our emotions and prejudices, that to do otherwise takes tremendous effort. When we first try to give up an act or a mental position, we feel suffering, we feel we shall miss it. The outer self feels intimidated. But once we attune ourselves with the inner light, we gladly and willingly give up the act because it has no appeal for us. We shall not miss it. Before we leave the subject, let us consider two things. First, the saying that there is no good or evil in the world is only a half-truth, leading to much error and misunderstanding. This idea does not take into account inharmony. An act may not be evil, but it certainly may be inharmonious. The person who says he can do as he pleases at all times because evil has no existence is the victim of much self-delusion. He must pay karma for his thoughts and acts, not because they were evil, but because they were not harmonious to cosmic laws. Second, we must avoid giving in to the idea that acts and thoughts which are considered to be positive will create karma for an individual and bind him to the earth. This idea, too, is often misunderstood, and people attempt to avoid all actions lest they create karma. They are in error on two counts. Karma is created not by the act, but by the motives which moved the person to act. Furthermore, his motives for refusing to perform a positive action create karma, even while he appears to be inactive. All of us have heard the old argument that it is impossible to do anything for others for completely unselfish reasons. It is argued that if we feel good whenever we do something kind for someone else, even that is selfish, as if it were wrong to feel good. The argument usually goes round in a circle, neither side convincing the other of any error in thinking, and from a practical standpoint, it makes about as much sense as arguing over how many angels can stand on the head of a pin. Fortunately, however, few of us ever take the argument too seriously, and we continue to do kind things for others in spite of the fact that it makes us feel good. Overcoming the obstacles and trials of life does not mean refusal to act. The cosmic itself is active at all times, and emulation of the cosmic means to act. By studying karma through meditation and contemplation, we grow to understand ourselves and our purpose for living. We learn that we are, in a sense of the word, like a giant magnet, attracting events and personalities to ourselves. We learn that we are constantly attracting to ourselves those things we desire and those things we fear. More than this, we learn that we attract not so much the things we want in our lives, but the things we expect. This realization alone is worth many times over the effort that is expended in study and meditation. By gaining a greater comprehension of karma, 
the law of cause and effect, we gain in wisdom. Just as man has learned to utilize the law of gravity to better his means, the student of mysticism learns how to use the law of karma to his advantage, materially, mentally, and spiritually. No time spent in the study of the law of karma is wasted. Certainly, fewer things in this world are of more importance than a comprehension of this great principle. Thank you.